All right, welcome to another episode of the Speech and Repeat podcast today with Marek Sacha. Hi, Marek, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. So uh, you are a very interesting guy. Uh, we already talked a little bit uh, prior to uh, me pressing record, and uh, there's a couple of things that we can talk about today. First and foremost, uh, you know, we always start the same way. And that's why, you know, the first question kind of uh, for today is obviously, you know, um, who is Marek? You know, I would like to kind of tell us a little bit about where you're coming from, you know, from the start and basically how, how, how did you end up where you are today and what is it that you're doing today? Uh, right. So if I would summarize it by one word, uh, who am I? I'm probably a geek. So my background is in mathematics and computer science and artificial intelligence. That's, uh, that's what I studied in, uh, in Prague and in Vienna. I'm, I'm originally Czech. And uh, uh, I had a small IT company at high school uh, and during the university time, uh, I spent a few years in uh, uh, McKenzie, which is an international consultancy. And afterwards I launched uh, three digital businesses. One was uh, a, a grocery delivery retailer uh, originally from the Czech Republic, uh, uh, which is called Rohlík, today Rohlík Group. Uh, the second business was uh, on-demand uh, social uh, care uh, or, or, or nursing care in England, uh, which is called Sarah Care. And currently I'm uh, also looking at a field of uh, material trading, but those would be the three segments uh, that I'm focused at. And luckily, uh, the companies so far have been uh, quite successful. Yeah, perfect. Uh, very interesting. So, I mean, uh, quite quite some experience uh, on your hand. Um, you know, and, and let's let's kind of uh, go to the early days. So, you say you would describe yourself in one word as geek, but I mean, ultimately, uh, first and foremost, looking at your career, you are an entrepreneur, right? And that brings some sort of characteristics with it. And uh, I would like to know, like, you know, how, how, how did you actually start out? Or what was kind of, you know, the first, you said you had like in a small IT company in, in high school, but like, how, how did you actually start with, let's say, your first legit kind of, you know, uh, approach towards entrepreneurship and saying like, okay, you know what, especially why, why, why I want to ask this question is because you mentioned as well that you joined McKinsey for a while, you know, and um basically what what made you kind of go from okay i'm at the super you know uh, successful company a super well-known international consultancy company you know flying all over the world and you know what i'm actually now going to go into the absolute absolute way and i'm going just going to start something myself you know and, and build something up for myself understood so like the very beginning uh already during like the final years of high school what i really enjoyed was was coding and uh, I was programming my own content management system as probably everyone uh, 20 years ago and, uh, uh, and, and similar things. And uh, I was also working as a subcontractor for one uh, uh, company that was developing information systems for hospitals and uh, other, uh, other parties in healthcare system uh, that was mainly looking at a database of approved uh, drugs. Uh, potentially the uh, contraindications, meaning if you take a drug A and drug B, you cannot really take it together because the effect will be harmful, you need to be careful. Uh, or we were doing uh, uh, in my company like small websites back then for municipalities. We had a local news portal 
that was for like a small region and we were selling uh, advertising back then. And uh, I was doing this uh, since I was like 16. At 18, I actually was able to establish a small limited company. Uh, but you should not see this company as like ultimate high growth uh, unicorn. Uh, that business never had more than, I don't know, five, six employees back then and uh, was really small business that paid costs and uh, allowed me to grow and uh, learn the first steps in uh, having my own business. Uh, and uh, uh, in the meantime, I, I went to uh, the university, uh, Czech Technical University in Prague, the Faculty of Electrical Engineering, uh, and uh, I finished the Bachelor in Computer Science there. And uh, afterwards, I did two degrees. One was in uh, uh, computer science and AI uh, from, from the same university. And the other one was in mathematics, specifically uh, mathematical logic or predicate logic on uh, Johannes Kepler University in Linz. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, I was still playing around with, with, with development. And uh, one day I went, uh, while I was writing my thesis, I was studying something in the Czech Technical Library. Uh, uh, just preparing for, for, for the school. And uh, there was a poster consultancy in business technology. Uh, and uh, I was, uh, I had no idea who McKinsey is or, uh, you know, what, what the business for really is. I was like a guy who grew up in Prague and uh, studied in Austria and that was it. And uh, I thought, yeah, that might be cool. And then I applied, I went through the tests and I was lucky to be selected. And I just liked the people. I remember one guy on the, on the on the event that was actually happening in Berlin uh, was a pilot uh, uh, and uh, he was astrophysicist by uh, education and at the same time he was professionally DJing in some of the clubs in Zurich and uh, and uh, on top he was a McKinsey consultant and I was like oh that sounds quite cool you know why don't I stick around a little bit and learn from uh, from the people and uh, I think the experience was quite great I on the second year, I spent like 250 nights in hotels and I had like over 70 or maybe even close to 100 flights in a year. And I was like, oh, this is the business world. And uh, I was uh, I was from Prague originally, but I was like a poor student. Yeah? So for me to have a chauffeur everywhere and to constantly fly somewhere and sleep in five-star hotels was, uh, was a nice thing. Um, and after three years, I was uh, kind of... Uh, uh, at the crossroads, uh, you can go for MBA and, and commit to it. And uh, like, but just personally, I think I'm a terrible employee. Um, and uh, and uh, I always like to do the things my way. And you cannot have like too many people like this in a company because otherwise it doesn't really work because you need to have like one vision and, and push and focus. And uh, 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 through the McKinsey network, I got connected to uh, people from uh, a fund called NR back then. Uh, today, the, 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 the fund is called Kaya VC, uh, Pavel Mucha and his partners. And uh, they told me, hey, Marek, we heard you are leaving. Why don't you uh, meet us? And we have some ideas uh, in starting a business here. And uh, what they had back then was they had a, a uh, food delivery company called Dame Idlo in Prague, uh, which was later acquired by Delivery Hero, so kind of a Delivery Hero moment. And uh, one thing that was special about it was that they had also their own logistics, which back then was not so common. So they had the cars and they optimized it and they had the software to uh, solve the traveling salesman problem and make sure that the restaurants are on time. 
And it was quite unique. And they are thinking, you know, if we have this uh, uh, logistics there uh, that is quite mature, why don't we use it as an asset and uh, try to use the same technology in another business? And then we had a discussion, what could it be? And uh, they already were thinking about the, they call it back then, or we call it back then, project supermarket. Uh, so uh, obviously grocery retail or flowers or uh, let's say uh, uh, drugs or something else that you can deliver. And we thought back then that the biggest potential uh, is the groceries and why don't we give it a try? So that was my, that was my uh, start in the field. So it was not my idea, the idea is actually coming from them, but I got quite excited about it. And uh, I went uh, uh, to a bank, took a loan, uh, I think like 80,000 year loan that I put as my cash to the business together with the other partners. Uh, and uh, we started the company. And uh, yeah, that was the first, I would say, serious attempt to have a high growth business. Yeah. That's interesting. So, you know, one thing that I, that I, that comes to my mind is uh, right away you op obviously were not aiming for 10 minute deliveries at the time <laughs> because otherwise you know if, if you think about it what time was that that was like 2014 right correct yeah yeah so if you think about now like 2021 right with all these you know getters and then gorillas and everything right so what we were doing, like we were quite revolutionary because back then uh, there was Tesco's already doing it, but they had like the delivery next day. Typically, they did not have next day any slots. So it was like in two or three days. Yeah. And what we started is a 90 minute delivery. Yeah. So and uh, later on, I think we moved to two hours and uh, that proved to be actually quite all right uh, in terms of um, in terms of how, how fast you can get the groceries. Yeah. Um, uh, I think like now it's a really big hype of those 10 minute delivery company. Yeah. Uh, you know, the complication to it is, or one of the complications, there are many, uh, is what is the breadth of your offering? How many different items do you offer? Mm -hmm. And what we found out at the beginning is that if you want to satisfy a lot of people, you actually need to have a good selection because if you don't have a, your favorite brand of beer or yogurt or dishwasher tablets or something else, then the people, if they, if, they, if they take their ordinary shopping list of let's say 50 items and they miss 15, yeah, they think, oh, this is crappy. You know, I cannot really buy anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and to be able to address this, you need to have, uh, yeah, like, I think average EDECA here in Germany or Tesco's, they can have six to 8,000 uh, SKUs, stock keeping units. And uh, that's kind of the range where you want to start. But uh, if you want to really uh, uh, make sure that the offering is complete and people can really have a choice and they can range from anywhere from farming products like bio quality to uh, standard brands to like discounted brands, then you need to go over 10,000 or like or even over 20,000. And uh, the 20,000 products, you just don't fit in uh, like a dark store that is around the corner from you because that's what allows you to get to 10 minutes. So those 10 minute delivery companies, I think they are going after a little bit of a different segment. This is like your Späti in Germany, like you have those like uh, late night stores. Uh, and uh, uh, if you forget uh, ketchup or uh, like beer and chips, this is something obviously that you can order and you have some basic selection of fruits and vegetables and, and uh, meat and dairy. 
uh, but that's about it. And I think the selection is actually quite limited and uh, that's, that, that's obviously good, but it's not a place where you will do like a really large weekly family shopping. But like, have you, have you looked into the space recently? So, because I find it very interesting, right? There's, there's different aspects to look at it from. So, because I mean, now, um, if you think about it, like uh, what, what, what makes a company truly great, right? If we look at, for example, uh, so like, what is the thing that they are very, very, very good at, right? So like the number one thing they figured out and where they use PLAS. So if we look at, for example, the ultimate one of that, that's obviously Amazon, right? So because Amazon's supply chain is just like insane. So, and I mean, Amazon, like now for years already, so if uh, was able to deliver, you know, in 30 minutes in Manhattan, for example, right? And, and, and now if we look at, I mean, obviously now we know, okay, if I, if I have Prime, you know, I know that I will have my product, whatever that is, you know, actually, whatever it is, it's not, it's not groceries, but like, if I need a screwdriver or whatever it is, I have it in 48 hours, right? That's because just they built this insane network of things. So when it comes to food, I, I think it's very interesting to see like what, what, how is this hype basically made up, especially when it comes to this, like if we say like that's their niche that they're focusing off, kind of, you know, these specific products that you would order at 10 o'clock in the night, you know, on a Friday evening or whatever. Like what is, what is the, what is justifying this hype of like putting this much money in? Because there's also other examples, right? Of, for example, um, a picnic, for example, from the Netherlands, right? Which, uh, which also has, a, has an interesting technology behind it, you know, also have their, for example, own vehicles, which are, you know, and, 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 and warehouse systems and stuff like that. Like, have you looked at it and, and tried to kind of like understand like what, what is happening? Yeah, so I don't have a super detailed uh, uh, insight because I'm out of the field for some time, but uh, if the, the, they have different models, right? So one is this super fast, super convenient 10 minute delivery that is typically happening from a local dark store. This is the uh, model that uh, uh, in Germany now is uh, Gorillas, uh, uh, it's uh, Food Panda and others. Um, then you can have a look at delivery from the local stores in the area. So you don't actually have a, a, a dark store. You just have like a map of stores there that are already there. You don't need to invest anything in it and you deliver from, from them. And the pioneer in this model was Instacart in the US quite some, quite some time back. They are still growing and uh, growing nicely, I think. And this is also the model that I think Getir uh, 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 was, was successfully adopting to a nice level of profitability in Turkey. I think they are from, they are from Turkish. Yeah, Turkish company. Uh, so it's it's a different model, yeah, because you already take you take the spetis that are already there, and you just connect them with the, like the delivery guys and equip the delivery guys with some technology to be able to pick the goods quickly, yeah. and 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 deliver it. And then you don't have any cost with warehousing, etc., because just you 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 shop from the stores that are already there with the, from the stock that they already have. Obviously, the complication is then. How do you know which products do they have? What is the availability? How do you really offer it? How do you make sure that you don't have too many missing items, et cetera? And then you have a model like Amazon Fresh or Ocado. Uh, Ocado is uh, uh, in UK. Ocado, like, what, what they did exceptionally well is they have robotized warehouses that are very large that uh, uh, can actually uh, uh, significantly reduce the cost of picking uh, uh, because like the robots are doing it. 
and uh, then they collect your uh, shopping basket uh, uh, automatically and then ship it to you uh, with the next day or same day delivery. Yeah. And Trohlik is more on the side of the Ocado model than on the Getir and uh, Gorillas model. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's uh, the, and the current hype, you know, why is there the current hype? I think it's a, a factor of multiple things. One of it is COVID. As a lot of people who were skeptical to buy food online lost the resistance because they just didn't want to go out and catch something. And uh, this pushed not just online grocery delivery, but uh, I think overall e-commerce five years ahead yeah. Uh, yeah. across the across the different the different segments. So that's that's one of the things where there was such a crazy growth. Uh, the 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 other factor is that some of the incumbents are really slow and uh, really bad at getting it done. Yeah. And even though they are getting it for years, uh, like Tesco's, if you look at the quality of the service, it's just significantly worse than some of the other online players yeah. that are just emerged as new companies. So, so this is a, this is a, this is a, uh, this is a second factor. So I think the market is ready. The uh, market wants it. Like the lot of people who would never consider buying strawberries online, they now go and have no problem in doing that. And they lost this barrier like i want to pick my own like fruits and vegetables myself because somebody else they will just try to ship me like products that are second class uh, and it's just not happening because the online companies cannot really afford it yeah like if, if they did it they would lose customers and nobody would trust them uh so i think i think i think that's it and uh, because it's such a high growth now obviously it attracted uh, a large amount of capital and i think what will be the next phase is Twofold. On one hand, who is really cracking the unit economics? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, like, uh, because to deliver groceries in 10 minutes is expensive. And if, let's say, like uh, on just my own personal example, I love the service. I use it because, oh, I missed something. So like it's, it's coming and it's generally faster than if I went uh, downstairs to like my local store here around the corner. Um, uh, but you 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 need to have the staff. Uh, uh, you need to you need to rent the warehouse. And uh, the overall, I think, grocery market is working with something like thirty percent gross margin blended. And if your average cart, let's say, is twenty euro, yeah, and per perhaps it's even lower for the for the really fast uh, orders, because if you forget something, you will order again, yeah, in another ten minutes. So uh, let's say thirty percent gross margin is six euro for one order. And from this, you need to pay like the shrinkage, the goods that you like, uh, like, like the vegetables that goes off, uh, meat that, that goes off. Uh, 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 you need to pay the logistics. You need to pay the cost of warehouse. You need to pay the guy who delivers it. It's quite thin if you think about it, what everything you need to put in the six euro. So I, my personal guess, you know, obviously don't know the numbers, but uh, you are now getting like 30, 40% discount on your shopping that is paid by investors behind the company. So. I would enjoy it while it lasts, and let's see uh, if they were they would really be able to nail it. The other thing I noticed, I I, I walk around those uh, locations quite often, and uh, it feels to me like Rohlik, uh, like uh, in 2015, yeah, when we found out that the warehouse is too hot and the chocolate is melting in the summer there. And now, like I needed to smile when I walked across the uh, Gorilla's Dark Store and I saw all those rental air conditioning units uh, connected because probably they get the same problem, right? Uh, so uh, I think they have like a way to go. 
it's also like incredibly high growth, right? Like they were non-existent as a company uh, uh, 12 months ago, and today they are valued a billion or, or, or north of it. And I think it's 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 a real challenge that they have, and I keep fingers crossed for them. And uh, I think there is space for like multitude of players because this is obviously one of the biggest markets in the world. So yeah. I think it's very interesting to watch. And uh, the unit economics is the one factor. The other factor is obviously the consolidation game. Because some of those players, like I think the same thing will happen, like happen to e-scooters, like the same thing happened to food delivery. Uh, so uh, there will be winners and losers from those big companies. And obviously now the investors are trying to bet on who is the winning, uh, winning horse in those respective markets. Absolutely. Yeah, same. I, I, I look at it the same way. You know, looking also at the time, um, so let, let's finish off that chapter uh, with uh, with your first venture in, in, in Prague. You know, how, how did that end, end for you? Did it end well? So for me, uh, I think back then it was incredibly difficult business to manage. And uh, like I was straight out of McKinsey. I never managed like really complex company. And I think uh, the uh, uh, Tomáš Čupr is the one of the partners who was, who was, who was founding the company, who, who stepped in as an experienced CEO. And I think he's a life project and he did remarkable work and he's an amazing entrepreneur and I learned a lot from him. Uh, I was able to, to cash out some of the business and use some of those proceeds to start the next business in UK, which also uh, took off uh, quite nicely. So uh, for me, it's definitely a, 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 a great memory. I, I'm, I'm, uh, so I sold the business to the, to the other parties uh, a few years ago. But uh, I'm really happy to see that they reached the unicorn status now, and uh, they are really growing internationally, and it's an amazing company. Yeah, let's 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 look at your next venture then. You know, um, how, how what is kind of the story behind that? So also, what I'm interested in is like you, how did you meet your co-founders? What what was kind of the story behind it? You know, you said I asked you like why London, and you said like yeah, I just moved there for personal reasons, and but like how how did it start? Like I mean, you came to London. What next? Uh, so um, after the grocery venture, I wanted to take some time off and I uh, went on a holiday with my sister back then. And I actually uh, reached out to McKinsey Network and I got connected to two investors. Um, uh, and um, uh, they were like, you know, Malik, why don't you fly to London and let's meet and uh, you have interesting experience and we can discuss some business ideas. And I was like, yeah, why not? So I jumped on a plane and fly, I flew to London. And uh, we were, uh, I, and I prepared a deck with a few options that I think would be good ideas. And interestingly, majority of those were in fintech. And uh, one of the things that came from them uh, was, uh, why don't we look at also the healthcare market? It's also very traditional. It's actually growing. And if you look at the, especially for the uh, senior care, uh, social care, nursing care, given the age pyramid, you actually know that this market will be growing for the next 30, 40 years. Uh, it's just, you already know it. Uh, that's, the, that's, uh, that's, that's nothing uncertain. And uh, if you uh, look at the current, uh, how, how do the current incumbents do that? Uh, we believe that there could be like tremendous opportunity to improve it. And uh, so I just sat in London, I rented a desk in the South Bank, we work there. And, uh, and what I, what I did was I, I did uh, like a mystery shopping with the companies in the sector there. And uh, I called them, I need the care for my grandpa. He's on this postcode, da, 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 and those are his needs. And it was interesting that they were incredibly slow to come back to me. 
they couldn't give me any details. I couldn't really pay by the credit card. Uh, 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 and, and it was just a mess. And the customer service was really bad. And I would think, you know, if, if they do this with like a paying customer, who is probably the most profitable for them. Uh, you know, how do they treat everything else also in terms of the efficiencies? And I was like, yeah, why don't we, why don't we try to change this? And uh, then we started and uh, at the beginning, um, uh, the, the name was, uh, was different. It was not called Sarah Care, uh, but based on the uh, input from one of the investors, we started with the name Golden Era Club. And uh, then I, I got a lot of feedback that to many people, it sounds like a Chinese takeaway restaurant. And uh, that we were like, oh, okay, maybe perhaps like the branding exercise could be a bit better. And then we changed the name to Revere Care. And then we got sued by a company that I will not mention that was in plastic surgery. And I'm like, you know, like we are not really a plastic surgery competition. Um, but uh, uh, back then, because we are in active fundraising, sometimes you just need to take those bullets and swallow them. Because if you fight it, even though you would win, you don't have like six months and uh, legal costs to, to be able to fight it. So then we, then we renamed it to Sarah Care. And uh, at the beginning, we thought that the solution is to have like a smart matching between the uh, skilled uh, care workers or nurses and uh, clients. But it appeared that uh, that was a very naive idea. And uh, uh, we were actually one of the first companies from the new wave of competitors that emerged that uh, uh, we abandoned just this because we thought everybody's advertising online, it costs really so much money. We cost, the lifetime value doesn't work. It's just, if we continue doing this and growing the business, we will run out of the money that we uh, raised and we will go bankrupt. And uh, we made a decision with the support from our investors back then that we will actually go fully regulated uh, 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 and we will swallow all those costs like on a compliance, training and everything else. But we will focus on providing the best quality care that uh, is there using digital technology. And uh, uh, looking back, that was the decision that was tough. Operationally, it was more difficult. It was more expensive. We didn't have so much money back then. But if we didn't do it, we would end up like a lot of the competitors either get acquired at a very low cost or being bankrupt. And that happened to many companies in the UK. I remember. Uh, uh, that at one point we had like five or six competitors uh, just in London uh, from the new uh, tech, uh, uh, let's say, based founders. And uh, now we are by by far, uh, like let's say by order of magnitude bigger than anyone else. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, that's actually a very big, uh, big uh, hurdle or let's say kind of challenge in, 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 in that vertical, right? So. I mean, health in general is, is, is insane, right? So it's, it's, it's super big. It's uh, healthcare in general is, uh, you know, 11 point something trillion dollar market. So it's insane. And it's, it's not just, let's say one, it's not really just one vertical, it's a subgroup of different verticals, right? And one of the, and, and that's the thing, right? So a lot of these, and I think that's, that's also the problem, right? That goes to, uh, a lot of things which are very about, uh, you know, really like preventing diseases and like these all, all uh, sorts of things, right? Is is that hurdle of actually, you know, the, the the regulations and the legal sort of things, you know? And that's why I think a lot of things, uh, especially when you look at all these health apps, it's uh, you see that if if you look at, for example, in Germany, I think Germany is super innovative when it comes to these uh, digital 
um, so, so health apps, which are prescribed basically by, by a doctor, for example, right? They introduced like a law for this and stuff like that. But if you look at the amount of, of companies that have gone through that process, it's not a lot, right? And if you look like globally, I think there's one, one recent number that I looked at was, I think there's the right now there is like a, somewhere between like 800,000 apps, you know, uh, that are related to health or wellness or whatever. And obviously the majority, like literally, you know, the vast majority of these applications, you know, they swirl around that fact of actually making a claim around your health, right? So they, 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 they say something, but it's, they're, they're not going to, let's say, really give you a justified answer to your health. And that is because obviously, you know, there's a huge regulation aspect to it. So do you see that the same way? I mean, I, I mean, you're still a board member at the company, right? And I'm sure that you also talk to a lot of people in the, in the health space. Do you see that changing or is that still, still something that, that, that you see across a lot of startups to not go that route? I don't think that the magic is just to have a single app or something like this, because I think those apps or even like the tracking devices, Apple Watch and whatever you, you use, yeah, Fitbit and, and all of those, they are typically used by young and healthy people. Yeah. And, uh, and about this group, we have actually a lot of data and you have all these regulatory problems, et cetera. But, uh, but overall, uh, the biggest spend is obviously on the people who have uh, deteriorating health, uh, multiple comorbidities, et cetera. And those, those users are not especially necessarily good with technology today. Yeah. Uh, so if you have an 85-year-old grandfather with dementia, uh, for him to use some app is not especially useful. And in Sarah Care, we have a different model. Um, we obviously have our uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 software, but the 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 app itself is not used primarily by the patient, mm. but it's used by the team that is taking care of him. Yeah, yeah. So we have the digital care plan. We we have the medical records digitized. We have uh, uh, we have the visit details. Yeah, and once you start to have all those data, you can start to make really smart interventions. Yeah. So if we now know uh, if the people are eating properly or not, because their care stuff can tell us, we know if their mood is getting better or worse, we can know changes in their medication. If necessary, we can know uh, their, uh, uh, their measurements like blood pressure, et cetera. And if you have sufficient amount of those data and also for those patients, we do it day by day, several times a day. So you have a time series that you can actually analyze and it's not just a random data point. And if you can correlate it with like a risk of fall, risk of infection, risk of hospitalization, then you will start to see patterns there that uh, with a smart algorithm you can identify and you can trigger alerts earlier on. And let, let's say for instance, this patient is, has a smelly urine and uh, has a bad mood and, uh, and uh, is not eating especially well in the last two days. This all can be just a sign of infection. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. if you figure out that the infection is coming before the person gets fever, 
yeah, let's say two days earlier, then it's just a matter of getting a, a GP prescribe a package of antibiotics for like, let's say course of a week. And the situation is resolved as opposed to going a full-blown infection, which especially an elderly frail patient with comorbidities is very serious uh, uh, condition, which ends up in hospitalization. And if you have all those data that are connected by the people who are trained to uh, uh, collect them, this is super powerful. And if Sarah is able to prove that we are significantly increasing health outcomes, meaning we are able to prevent falls, we are able to prevent hospitalizations because of several reasons, because of infections, etc. Then the company will not be just a unicorn, the company will be a centicorn, because this is something that every health system in the world would want. Yeah, so my question there is, how, uh, how does the model then work? Do you um, basically partner up with care um, care uh, taker let's say uh, institutions so like you know uh, where they have these local teams basically obviously um, you know there's let's say uh, um, a person that has let's say 10 patients that uh, he or she sees a day and that person is then equipped with your let's say tools digital tools or how how, how did you set up the model so currently i would say the the core of the business is we provide the care ourselves and we are regulated companies so the Carers and nurses are our employees. Yeah. And we provide the full package of care. So we don't we don't just give them an app. Yeah. We deliver the service. We are responsible for the quality. We are responsible for the training. We are responsible for the selection of your team. And we are responsible for the care delivery. And uh, parts of it uh, uh, we uh, productize and offer also to other people in the market. Like example from this could be we automated and digitized recruitment because uh, we thought that part of the training can be done online we can get people to care faster because we will we will train them faster they can do it online they don't need to go to the training for the course of several days they can do it whenever they they, they feel like it in the evenings etc it's just much more convenient and we can do the uh, uh, recorded interviews etc to make sure and we can automate background checks and we package this uh, in a product called joint social care and uh, we work with the British government uh, during the COVID crisis to offer this to everyone else in the industry. So yeah. uh, also the other companies can use this to uh, recruit people. Uh, and uh, it was a great success because it was especially during the COVID crisis. And a lot of people in hospitality or similar industries were hit, and uh, which obviously resulted in a lot of unemployment. And people can just uh, uh, easily switch from, from this to, to care uh, using an automated tool. And obviously you cannot do everything online. You still need to have some parts of the training. Uh, uh, example could be, how do you move the person around yeah, if they are disabled? Yeah? Like, so you don't hurt them and they don't hurt you. This is not like something that you just learn uh, on a video. This is something that you need the practical experience perhaps with some equipment. Uh, uh, to, to, to be able to, to be able to do that. So parts of the software we are productizing and we are also offering to others. Uh, but the core of the business is to really deliver the social and nursing care ourselves. But isn't that handicapping you as well in basically the scalability factor? Because you can only, I mean, also looking at kind of international exp expansion, right? Or even national, let's, let's, let's take a look at national expansion because if you, if you see care, giving so the actual caregiving basically enhanced ultimately what you basically build is like you build a modern day modern day uh, 
caregiving facility, which is super uh, super well equipped with uh, with modern tools, collects a lot of data, obviously over the years on health related uh, problems or whatever, where you then are able to actually give some really really interesting uh, advice and then and, and also uh, you know superb care. But isn't that like challenge challenging to to scale it basically? Um, perhaps the answer to that is uh, stands on few legs. Uh, first of all, is because we are a regulated company, we can easily buy other regulated businesses. Okay. What we obviously did is we took the old-fashioned companies, bought them, put the technology inside, significantly improved quality and operations, and continuously uh, 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 and, and continue the operations. And this is something that you can do in the UK, and we did we did a lot of this in UK, and we are one of the like uh, now we are six or 7,000 employees already in, in, in UK. So uh, actually the scaling, I think it, 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 it even helped us to scale faster. Uh, and you can do this also internationally, obviously, because if you then have already the relationship with the regulator and you already have the business operation there, you can tweak your tech to, uh, for the differences that, that are obviously between the regulation in let's say Germany and uh, United Kingdom. And then you can roll it out as well. So that's that's one thing, and the the other thing is obviously if you productize the best parts there and offer them to the market as uh, let's say software yeah, uh, or uh, a service, and this is uh, the stuff that we did with the with the joint social care as an example. But but you can go beyond that. You can see for like other elements of it. Um, the one thing I I believe is important is if you really want to have a great healthcare innovation you need to have a sufficient control of the quality of the care. Yeah, yeah. And if you are just an app, you have very little control on the quality. Because how do you select the people? How do you make sure they really do that? Yeah. How do you really make sure that they are trained well to do that? And you can help a little bit with like online trainings, etc. And like the app is like checking in and checking out of people based on the uh, NFC chip. So they are really at the place where they are declaring to be, etc. So those are the technology tools to, to do the through this, but uh, but uh, the, the the quality element is crucial because that's what uh, is uh, differentiating like great companies from from uh, uh, from 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 the the rest of the market. Yeah, but then ultimately, it's a uh, it's you know if if you look at if you look at the long term perspective, right? It's it's insane in, in terms of the, the the potential value and and the potential growth as well, right? Because we talked about this before we before we press recording, right? So traditional incumbents, right, work with a work that have been existing for quite some time, work with old infrastructure, right? When it comes to technology. And now let's say if we come from a standpoint of that technology is something, technology is a tool, right? A very powerful tool or a set of very powerful tools that we can use in order to solve very interesting uh, challenges, right? Then then this is ultimately kind of like building a you know a, a future proof centicorn as you said right in regards to modern day care absolutely yeah and the best innovations you can productize you can package it as a software and you can offer it to like companies in the market uh, part of it you can do yourself you can have a different approach to different markets so it's all open but uh, once you have a toolkit and toolbox a cookbook that will keep the people out of hospital 
in 90% of the cases from the preventable uh, from the preventable causes it will be extremely powerful yeah. and it's something that every healthcare system in the world will want great uh, amazing amazing um, so my question is you said <laughs> there's two things right so a you said you love building and b you said you are not really good at a uh, good employee <laughs> so my question is why are you not in london anymore why are you uh, how what, what was the decision to to basically you know move move away from london so I'm, I'm still quite actively involved in the business. I'm a shareholder and I sit on the board. Uh, I think after, uh, uh, let's say three years in McKinsey, two years in uh, the first grocery delivery startup and more than three years in, in Sarah Care back then. Uh, and after working like hundred hours a week for like, let's say eight years, I felt like incredibly tired. Uh, I had some, uh, some health troubles and I needed, to, uh, uh, I needed to step back a little bit and uh, uh, focus on myself and uh, the family as well, as I have two small children right now. So I think that was the main reason. The, the, other, the other thing was that uh, at the beginning, I met a fantastic business partner, uh, Ben Marutapo, who is currently the CEO. And we, uh, uh, he had a story with like, uh, his mom uh, needed care, and he was super upset about the state of uh, the, uh, the, the offer uh, that, was, that, was, that was available in the market. And, um, we partnered early on, and uh, uh, we are, uh, yeah, like friends and uh, good business partners ever since. So I think that was also something that the company was super stable, uh, growing, and uh, uh, with with a great talent. So like it enabled me to uh, take a step back and uh, and uh, and rest a bit uh, and uh, and uh, think what I want to do next. And uh, that was actually like oh, I think all stars aligned. So I was very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah, perfect. So, you know, looking at the time, um, what I wanted, wanted to talk about with you is, uh, and I, I love to talk about this with people that, um, you know, all are builders or have been building, uh, uh, you know, companies and, and organizations and teams and everything. And um, that is obviously as well, even though you said, you know, I, uh, you needed some rest and, um, you know, it, w it was obviously quite, um, you know, challenging to, to work in this really, let's say, uh, crazy, crazy startup environment for, for this many years. I am 100% sure that somebody that loves building and that, that loves this is not stopping to look at, at opportunities or is still observing opportunities because ultimately, I mean, you, you are still surrounded by the people, right? With your network, et cetera, you see things, you talk to people, and everything right and there's always your mind always looks at, at things automatically in an opportunistic way so basically my kind of you know as the last question for today um before we can finish this up here i wanted to talk with you about in general like mm, you know things such as trends uh timing uh, in regarding to these trends or you know just things that you are look uh, that, that you observe where you say like okay you know this is interesting to look at Keeping in mind, obviously, because oftentimes when I say this, the, the easy answer to say is like, yeah, you know, there's opportunity everywhere. But, you know, that's not what I want to hear. I want to know, I want to hear specifics, you know, specific examples of things where you say like, you know what, this is something where I believe, because although sometimes, you know, things such as we talked about this with uh, with e-commerce you know and 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 telehealth as well being like you know pushed forward by a black swan event such as covid for example right but still there's 
there is these things which people look at and, and that's what I want to hear from you personally. What are the next big things? Um, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult, but very interesting question. Um, perhaps a few things. I think the overall automation and digital digitalization is speeding up and there will be more and more opportunity in it. And you can see it in companies like UiPath, the uh, Romanian unicorn uh, that is doing the back office automation. Uh, and uh, more and more of it is coming to something that I call like the big and boring industries. And it, it's anything from groceries to care, to uh, oil and gas, to automotive, etc. So like whatever you can digitize and automate and actually replace the humans in it and with, uh, with the technology will be big and there is still enormous amount of opportunity yeah? like uh, like a fintech is, is is great example like that the, all those apps are practically replacing the tellers in the bank etc like on, in terms of the service uh, so those are the opportunities that don't necessarily need to be sending rockets to space but it has a great impact uh, those are huge markets and uh Perhaps in the, uh, the separate fields, it's actually less competition. Because obviously, if you're a smart like engineer, you want to build your self-driving car or you want to build the next uh, uh, next uh, next algorithm for virtual reality or something like really cool. Those like big and boring things, on the first instance, they don't look so cool and exciting, but uh, you can still have like enormous impacts. So, so for me, this is one big trend that will continue. And uh, uh, we discussed this already, like what's this digitalization automation and logistics uh, in, in groceries, uh, the, uh, the, the healthcare, et cetera. But uh, you, can, you, can, you can look at what's closer to you, like construction, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, publishing, it's whatever it is. And in terms of the big, big trends that I think are coming uh, uh, today that I think are very hopeful uh, and will change everything that we do. Uh, for me, on the one hand, this is quantum computing. And if uh, uh, the research will really advance that fast, that uh, there will be a practical application soon for the computers. And I actually don't think that some of the companies in the field are too far. Uh, then this will change the computational power and like even the power of imagination, what we can do and which problems we can solve with technology. Uh, that, that, would be, that would be one element. The, the other element I think is uh, like virtual reality or augmented virtual reality, which I think currently they have some, some industrial applications and they have some uh, uh, gaming, but I think this is like really like 1% of the potential. And uh, if we are able to have a practical tools that will be helping like majority of people in daily life and not just, let's say, uh, uh, augmented uh, uh, Google Maps on your phone that you can actually see uh, the different different uh, things on your phone and where to walk, uh, but, but more sophisticated applications, I think those would, be, those would be really big as well. So probably those two uh, for me, uh, quantum computing and, and, uh, and uh, the, the uh, more practical applications of the virtual reality I think will be really mind-blowing yeah absolutely so I mean same so I've, I've, I've talked to talked to a bunch of people on, on that and so just recently I talked with uh, the head of strategy and 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 MA from a, one of the 
bigger um, semiconductor companies and as well. So on his radar as well, quantum computing, very big. And uh, the, the interesting thing about quantum computing is also that and the same goes with uh, I, I, my feeling with AR and VR is that these, these you know, these fields and, and the same I would say is also with, with blockchain, although blockchain now has this NFT thing again, bringing it up, but AR, VR and, and quantum computing are, they're like, there's, I, I have a feeling that there's insane developments happening right now, which people are not aware of. And now, especially with AR and VR, I think in the next five years, there will be you know, really incredible things that we will see that will come up. Also, I think on a, on a health side of things, um, there's a, a lot of things that, that can be done there. So definitely very exciting. Yeah, I'm very hopeful. And it's really hard to predict if the big breakthrough and major adoption will be in five or 15 years yeah. or, or, or 30. I think it's really hard to say. Like if you look at artificial intelligence, uh, I think now it's really hot and there were like really cool algorithms that came out in the last 10 years, but the field is, is there since like 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. Yeah. And uh, uh, for a long time, there was not so much move actually for like decades. And then it came again. So like, you never know, like sometimes the toolkit like uh, is not changing, but the technology and the capacity is changing. So I think something will happen. And uh, I would agree with you uh, that within the next five to 10 years, in, in, in my opinion, um, the world will change again. And um, I'm curious to see how. Uh... Yes, absolutely. Marek, it was great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for being here. Um, amazing that you were there and uh, hope to speak to you soon. Thank you very much.